morning. Merry Christmas. Good morning. Merry Christmas. It's Christmas Eve. Did you know that? How many people knew it was Christmas Eve? How many people are feeling the pressure of it's Christmas Eve? How we doing? Moms, how we doing? I don't say dads, how we doing? Dads have like one job. It's like, be sure mom's got a gift. <laughs> have you done your job yet this year, dads? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. We got some good. We got some confused looks. Uh, so, you know, Walmart's open, I think, until six today. So if you're planning to go later, you got to get it done by six. But Target, I think, is open until eight. So you still got a couple hours left. How are we, how we doing with the presents? Everybody have all of the presents, all of them. Like you bought them all and they're here, they're at your house, they're not in the mail. Yeah? Doing good? And they're all wrapped? Yeah? They're not all wrapped. Yeah, okay. So everybody, everybody who has all of their presents here and all wrapped, raise your hands. Gold stars. Oh, man, I was going to throw out candy canes for it. That's too many. Plus, they don't, like, fly that far, you know? Just like, that's about as far as they go. We're too big now to, like, toss out candy like we used to do. It's too bad. Otto wants, a, Otto wants candy canes. You can get more after the service. Um, who feels like they have everything under control? Like, dinner tonight, under control. Breakfast tomorrow, presents, everything's under control. You got it. Who feels like, eh, maybe it's not so much under control? Huh? How many of you are like, eh, who cares? It'll be fine. <laughs> Gold stars for you, but no candy canes. You're weird. How many of you uh, are normal, and thanks to those cursed Hallmark movies we talked about last week, you feel some pressure for things to just sort of be perfect this year. Yeah. If you have a tree, if you bought presents, if you plan to wrap them, you probably feel a little bit of pressure for it to be a kind of a perfect Christmas, right? You need it to go well. We all want to have ourselves a merry little Christmas, one that's picture perfect. I talk about this a lot at Christmas because I think that we all think that we're chill about it, but the pressure just sort of mounts from Thanksgiving until Christmas Eve, and then a lot of things happen. You have these weird explosions at home because pressures are mounting, and everybody wants everything to be just right. And so I, I talk about this a lot at Christmas because I feel like it's important for somebody to just come along and say, it's going to be okay, and we can all just relax and breathe. It's not a big deal if the cookies get burnt or if dinner's not on time. One time I was preaching on Christmas Eve and I was talking about this sort of thing and I was talking about all the ways that even like social media puts pressure on us to have a picture perfect Christmas and there was this thing, uh, this was years ago, so this was before TikTok, so this was when Instagram was the TikTok of the time. There's this thing on TikTok or Instagram going around where everybody was like, all the moms were like, what you need to do to have the perfect Christmas day pictures is you need to get a nice big box and you need to wrap it like a present, but you need to use that for your trash so that there's no, not only is there no trash, but there are no trash bags in your photos. You just have a present that sits there that the trash goes into so all the pictures are perfect without any 
trash or trash bags. And I was using this as an example of, guys, just like, chill. It's okay if there's trash in the photos. It's okay if there are trash bags in the photos. Jesus came. It was a mess. Jesus came to our mess. Part of the beauty of Christmas is we can just relax and enjoy Christmas and not have to have it all be perfect. We're not Mormons, we're Christians. We don't have to put on a show. And so I kid you not, after the service, some mom comes up to me and I was like, I really just want to thank you for that tip about the box and the present thing. Like, I'm going to do that. I was, really, I was like, did you listen to the sermon? She's like, I might have been a little distracted. I've been thinking about all the things I got to get done tonight. <laughs> some of us feel a lot of pressure at Christmas. On the one hand, we have our hopes and dreams and expectations for how it could go and how it could be. We all want a white Christmas. And then there's the reality that we live in southern Indiana. And there's this thing in the middle we can't control called the weather, and so it's going to be like 65 degrees tomorrow and rain. Not going to happen. What stands between our hopes and our dreams and our expectations and reality? It's all the things that we can't control. It's all the things that we can't control. And on a superficial level, maybe we just want ribbons and bows and non-burned cookies and snow on the ground and stockings hung by the fireplace with care. And maybe for some of us, some of those hopes and expectations run a little deeper. They can be as simple as, I want everybody to really understand and be grateful for this present that I got. I want them to understand and feel how much love and care and thought went into this present. I want that face to light up. I want the kids to all be equally excited about all the presents at all, and to have all the right gratitude at all the right times. And, or it can be complicated, more complicated, because of the hard realities that get forced on us at Christmas time like difficult family dynamics, places where conflict and sin and drama have made certain relationships hard or challenging, and we get confronted with that at Christmas time. Or it can be the reality of death, just the fact that there's an empty place at the table or one fewer stop this Christmas, or knowing or thinking it likely this might be the last Christmas with grandma or mom or dad or an uncle or a loved one, a friend who's not doing well. This is the reality of a broken home, of having to have multiple Christmases in multiple places. In other words, sin, sorrow, and death are right there with us as we celebrate life. As we celebrate the joy of Christmas, the light of the world, there's darkness that's the backdrop for it all. And these are all things that are never fully under our control. You can't control death. You can't control it. It interrupts our lives when we least expect it. We can't control whether things worked out with our parents' marriage. There's only so much you can do about burnt cookies once they've been burned. Sometimes the bows just don't bow right. So on the one hand, we have our expectations and our desires and our hopes and our dreams. On the other hand, we have reality. In the middle, we have all the things that we can't control. And like I said, if nothing else, it'll be the weather, right? No white Christmas. It's out of our control. This morning, we're going to continue in our series through Romans. 
and we're talking about control. We're going to talk about it in the context of strength and weakness, which is where we've been the last three or four weeks now. One thing I want us to see as we move into this next week, as we think about this morning and tonight and tomorrow, is that the need for control, the need to have it, the need for things to come out right and perfect. When we interact with people this Christmas, people in our families, when we interact with people who are uptight and upset because things are outside of their control and they're not matching their hopes and dreams and expectations and they want to blame you for that or for how they feel about that. A need, a grasping for control is a sign of weakness. And if you're strong, you have a responsibility to bear with those who are weak. And if you're weak, there's good news. Because you don't have to stay in your weakness. And you don't have to oppress everyone with it. Jesus made himself weak so that you can be strong and so that he can be your strength. So Romans 15, we're almost done with the whole book. Only 16 chapters. We need the first half or third of Romans 15 done this morning. Romans 15, beginning in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Okay, so remember for the last couple of months, we've been talking about the strong and the weak, right? Those of us who are strong and those of us who are weak. And the weak are those who, for whatever reason, maybe it's a matter of temptation, maybe it's a matter of conscience, they don't have the ability to live in the full freedom of Jesus. And the stronger are those who do. Okay, so for the example of this sort of thing, and remember, we're all strong and weak in different ways, right? But for the example that we've been using, we're going to stick with alcohol because it's the one we've gravitated toward, and it's easier for us to wrap our head around than meat sacrifice to idols or clean and unclean foods. It's not something that we in our time deal with as much, right? So when it comes to alcohol, where does God draw his line? Drunkenness, right? There's a line over here, and it's drunkenness. Okay? Someone who is strong with respect to alcohol is able to walk right up to that line without a problem. They can have a couple drinks, no big deal. Not especially tempted to get drunk, not a problem. They don't feel much tension about it. It's just not a thing for them. Someone who is weak with respect to alcohol says, Either my conscience won't allow me to go that far because I just, like, I've got a problem. Or because of my temptations, I just can't go that far. I can't have one drink. I know God's line's over here. But for me, my line needs to be over here. My line. Not God's line, mine. Because, not because I'm judging God's line, but because I know myself and I know my weakness. So here's my line, and I just know that if I start to get this far, I'm going to end up way over here. Or there's a good chance I'll end up way over here, and I just don't want that. So here's my line. Because with, with respect to alcohol, I'm weak. I'm weak. That's a matter of what Romans 14 says, a matter of opinion, a matter of judgment, a matter of conscience, a personal conviction. 
God says, don't get drunk. I say, good, okay, fine. I'm not going to have one drink. I can't do it. I've got to draw a line over here. But then what happens? What happens is we end up taking the lines that we draw for ourselves, and then we feel bad about everybody else who lives in this space over here. And maybe we judge people who live space in this, in this space over here. And maybe we're a little jealous of people who can live in this space over here. And so then what happens? We start to think that our line is pretty righteous, pretty holy. In fact, maybe more holy than God's line over here. And that we're way better than everybody who lives in this space between. And then we start to tell people, if you were really holy, if you were really righteous, if you were really godly, you draw your line where I did. And we forget the fact that God drew this line here and he didn't make a mistake. He knew exactly what he was doing when he drew the line the first time. But we begin to think that we are more holy and more righteous than God. And then we hold other people to our standards and we put ourselves in the place of God. And now what is our weakness becomes a tool we use to oppress other people for just the freedom and liberty that they have in Jesus. And this happens all over the place in our lives. We become Pharisees and legalists who turn the kingdom of God into a matter of food and drink. A matter of things. An external list of do's and don'ts that don't have respect for the actual holiness that God requires of us. Which is a matter of obedience, but it's the obedience that comes from the heart, from faith. Because whatever is not of faith is sin. I'm just repeating phrases from the last couple of weeks from what Scripture says. Okay, Jake, we have to focus on externals some though, right? Because obedience really does matter. And there's a whole world of people who say, oh, it's just about the heart. And that means I can just do whatever I want. There aren't lines anywhere. Because it's just about my heart. But what that is, is it's creating a false dichotomy. Obedience is what God requires, and obedience is a matter of the heart. It's both and. It's not either or. It's internal and it's external. God's moral law hasn't changed. God cares what we do with our bodies, and he looks at the heart as we do. And that's why we have such freedom when it comes to matters of conscience and matters of opinion, because God wants our hearts to be ruled by love. To be able to say that people are more important than food, and I, we have a place where we can demonstrate that, where we can show it. I have freedom to eat and to drink and to do any number of things, but because people are more important to me than those things, I can stand over here with my weak brother or sister. That's not a problem, because people are more important than the freedom I have to live over here. Now, as I stand over here with my weaker brother or sister, what I'm not going to do is allow them to think or myself to think that their line is God's line and the kingdom of God really is about food and drink. Right? What I'm going to do is I'm going to help them get strong. I'm not going to force them up to this line where they might stumble or fall, but I'm also not going to let them speak evil of what God has said is good. Again, that's just quoting Romans 14 from last week. Do not let what is good be spoken of as evil. And 
The kingdom of God isn't about what we can get away with. It's not about being strong or weak. It's about love. And we all have places where we're strong, and we all have places where we're weak. And we have to learn to live with one another without quarreling about opinions, which is how this section begins in 14 verse 1. But we live in a weak time. We live in a weak culture where the weak oppress the strong with their opinions and make it impossible to live and breathe and speak freely. It's called the internet and college campuses in the HR department. And that's because American Christianity for years has gotten weak and lost its strength, lost its teeth. And so instead of being governed by God's big laws, we're governed by a bunch of petty, small, little laws put in place by petty, small, weak, little tyrants who want to dictate and control everything about our lives. And as we've studied Romans 14 and 15, the truth that we've learned about controlling people, the kind of people who need to control everyone and everything, is that they are actually just really, really weak. They're really weak. Call them religious, call them legalistic, call them controlling or manipulative or judgmental. The Bible calls them weak. You might call them broken. We see this in politics, we see it in schools, we see it in the workplace, we see it in churches, we see it in families. It doesn't always feel weak because it's loud, it's obnoxious, it's abrasive, but it's almost always the case that the weakest people talk the loudest and have the strongest opinions and try to impose them on everybody else because they just don't have the freedom to live for God themselves and be at peace with Him. They're weak and fragile. And they don't have the intention or desire to become strong. So when it comes to self-control, what happens if you don't have any self-control? You don't have any self-control, then everybody else is responsible for how you feel. And you have to control them. If you have no control over the outputs, you have to control all the inputs. When it comes to self-control, they don't have any, and they don't believe God can give it to them. They've given up on the idea, so it becomes about controlling everyone and everything out there. So it's everything from you need to learn my pronouns to you're just always responsible for how I feel at all times. They don't believe God can actually lead people, so they have to manipulate and control people. They don't believe God can forgive sin. So they try to ensure that they never do anything wrong. And that means, like we talked about last week, just constantly redrawing the lines. Redefining the terms. Learning to call what is evil good and what is good evil. Why does that happen? Because people are weak and broken and in pain. And they're passing that pain on to the people they should love and care for. Parents that have to control their kids and that operate through manipulation are actually just really weak. Instead of seeing it as a responsibility to help their kids grow strong and mature and free and independent, 
They have to keep them on a leash. Marriages where one or both sides are controlling or manipulative exist that way because there's not trust. There's no freedom, no baseline level of confidence in each other. And that's a function of of weakness. It might help some of you to reframe in your mind controlling and judgmental and manipulative behavior as weakness because it can give you compassion for those that feel the need to grasp for control. There's something there. There's something fundamentally wrong and broken and weak that drives that kind of behavior. So here's the question, is there hope for the weak? I hope so, because we all are weak in different ways, all of us. How do the weak become strong? How are the broken healed? The biblical answer we've been studying in Romans 14 and 15 is this. The weak need to find themselves in a place where they're among those who are strong and can be strong where they're weak. And the strong must bear with those who are weak. Those who are healthy must bear with those who are broken, and that's it. But that's just family. That's what a church family is and should be. And so what does it look like? The strong have an obligation to bear with the weak, and that means, back to the idea of lines, the strong don't yank the weak up to the line where they might stumble and fall. They walk back so they can strengthen the weak in love and they can walk beside them. So they can come back and say, you're more important to me. You, this relationship, you are more important to me than my freedom and my liberties, than food or drink or whatever the issue is. I'm going to walk with you. We should all have places in our lives where we're doing that because we love people more than we love ourselves. At the same time, like I said before, we don't give up God's ground we don't allow people to think that they're more righteous and holy than God, and we don't allow them to turn the, the kingdom of God into food and drink. It's not about that. It's about love and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. The reality is the goal for each of us, and God's goal for us, is maturity and strength. We want to be walking in freedom. We want to help each other grow grow. And that's just what a household, what a family looks like. And so I'm going to make it really simple. Parents, anybody ever have kids? Yes, some of you? No, no, yeah, yeah. Kids, anybody? Yeah, kids? Is every kid in your house worthy of the same freedoms and privileges? Taryn's like, yeah, only child. Freedoms and privileges extend with age and maturity and strength, right? Right? As parents, we never adopt a one-size-fits-all approach to how we raise our kids. That would be really stupid and really foolish. Right? Should your toddler be allowed to cross the street unsupervised? Probably not, right? Anybody bold enough to just say no? Should your toddler be allowed to cross a busy street unsupervised? Anybody want to be like, yeah, probably? No. How about your 15-year-old? 
It it depends on the 15-year-old, doesn't it? Depends on the 15-year-old. What happens when we take a one-size-fits-all approach? Well, my 15-year-old can walk to Walmart and walk to work and whatever, so my toddler, I mean, the rules are the rules, so my toddler's got to be able to roam the streets. That would be bad parenting. That would be stupid. Because the toddler like, what'd you say? Yeah, and then it's going to get CPS called on you. That's right. It's a great way to have that happen. The toddler doesn't have the strength, doesn't have the wisdom, doesn't have the maturity to have the same freedoms and liberties that your 15-year-old has. Okay, well then let's have the one-size-fits-all approach be governed the other way. Let's just have it be governed by the weakest. Okay, so the toddler can't be let outside the house unsupervised. So the 15-year-old can't be let outside the house unsupervised. You got to hold mommy's hand across the street, honey. Peter needs me to hold his hand across the street. (laughs) It's stupid, right? If we let the rules of the week become our standards for everybody, it's just the tyranny of the week. We call this America. It's the weak tyrannizing the strong. If I can't have freedom, nobody can. That's not good or wise parenting. As our kids grow and mature, we loosen the reins. We allow them to experience more of life. We allow them to make their own decisions and their own mistakes. When they're young, we have a lot more control. And we're exercising a lot more discipline and restraint. But the goal is not to maintain that. The goal is to usher them into freedom so that they go and face the world And it's God who disciplines them as they face the consequences of their own actions, but they're ready for it because they've been taught that their actions have consequences. They need that transition. And older brothers and sisters have that same kind of responsibility too, don't they? To protect those who are weaker, to help them feel safe, to help them get strong. It's one thing for, so Haddon's my youngest, he's seven. Haddon can cross the street by himself if it's in our neighborhood. If it's a busy road, yeah, maybe mom and dad need to be there, right? Or, or big brother. Or big sister. We all have varying degrees of responsibility for each other. And that's the way it's supposed to be in church, where we're leading one another into maturity and strength in the places where we're weak. And we're not allowing ourselves or each other to be defined by our weaknesses. And we're not allowing each other to remain in our weakness. Weakness isn't the rule. We're not to be oppressed and tyrannized by it, but we are to bend to it and bear with it. Because why? Because we've all been weak and we all have places where we're still weak. And it's what Jesus did for us and it's what Jesus, it's what Jesus is doing for us all the time. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus is God. He is ultimate strength. But what did Jesus do at Christmas? He took all of his strength that made and holds the universe together 
and he clothed it in the weakness of a little baby. He was born to a poor couple from a backwater town that nobody cared about. He was born in a barn. He lived humbly. He walked among us. He healed our hurts. He preached the truth. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was despised and rejected and mocked, reproached by those that he himself made for his own praise. And he climbed up on the cross and he took our place. The punishment that we deserve for our sins, he bore. Our sin on his shoulders so that we could have his righteousness, his perfection, his strength. He was God Almighty, eternal, immortal, invisible, and we were helpless, hopeless, broken, lost, ruined, consumed by sin and guilt and without hope and without God in the world. He was strong. We were weak. And he made himself weak for our sake so that he could be our strength and he could make us strong. And if you're a Christian, that's how you've been loved. And so as a Christian, this is how you are to love. If you are strong, you need to be like Jesus. You need to bear with the weak and please the weak. And if you're weak, it's okay. It's not a sin to be weak. You need to sit around yourself with those who are strong and learn to depend on them and learn from them so you can mature and grow. The point is not that we get into weird power struggles or try to define ourselves or frame ourselves as strong or weak or empowered or victims. It's so that we're all equipped to just be honest with ourselves and love each other and love God so that we can all grow together in strength and maturity in Jesus. So here's a question. Have you always been as strong as you are now? No. No, you haven't. Aren't you glad that Jesus was patient with you and bore with you in your weakness? Don't you have people in your life that God used, that God gave you, who were patient with you when you were young and immature and weak, that bore with you in your weakness? Don't you love how patient and gracious Jesus has been with you over the years? Don't you want to show that to other people? For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Okay, he's quoted from the Old Testament in reference to Jesus, that line, the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. Jesus bears it all, and that's prophecy. And he's saying, look, the scriptures have always been there to encourage you, to build you up, to make these things clear to you, and to give you hope. It's always been there. This is our God. He bears our reproach. He bears our shame. He bears our weakness. It's just who he is. It's just what he does. And that should give you strength and encouragement and hope that you can endure, that you can get stronger that you can be encouraged and obey, that you can have hope that you'll make it, that you can have hope that it's going to be okay. 
Because Jesus is for us. So how do you get that encouragement and hope? He says from the Scriptures, from the Bible. How many of you spend time reading your Bible every day? If you did, what would it give you? Encouragement and hope. We're going into the new year. How many of you thought about a Bible reading plan? You should think about it. 15 to 20 minutes a day. Everybody has 15 minutes a day for a little bit of encouragement and hope. And the encouragement and hope that you get from the Scripture is not the cheap idea of encouragement and hope that you think of, that you get from the world. It's not shallow. It has tough stuff in it. And the toughest stuff is often the most encouraging stuff. Have you read about the fall of our first parents? They blew it. And we're just like them. It explains myself to me. It explains the world to me. And you know what else I see when I see Adam and Eve blow it? I see God step right in immediately and promise to fix what we ruin. And you see that kind of thing throughout the whole scriptures. All the faith of our fathers stuff that we studied this whole past semester. Part of the encouragement and hope is not that these are great heroes, but that these are deeply flawed, sinful people. That screw things up. Deeply flawed, simple, sinful people who have a faithful God who steps in to fix what we break. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. If God has welcomed you, welcome one another. That's the principle we've been hitting up against, right? For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. That's us. That's God talking about you. Thousands and thousands of years ago. The root of Jesse's is coming. And one day, there will be people, Gentiles, across the world who hope in him and sing praise to his. He's talking about you. This prophecy is fulfilled in you today. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing 
so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Jesus came to be a servant of us all, Jew, Gentile, the whole world. It's all there. It's always been there. The early church struggled to live together, to live in harmony. Jew and Gentile, weak and strong, was a hard, tough deal to sort through. Jesus is the servant of us all, and he's our example. So as you struggle to live with those who are weaker, as you're tempted to judge those who are stronger, remember Jesus. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Spirit you may abound in hope. That's the promise that was made. That's the promise that was kept at the coming of Jesus. That's the promise that's being kept in your life right now, even as we speak. And this is the promise that God will continue to keep until there's no more need for hope because all hopes are realized in Jesus. Let that hope sustain you this Christmas. When you're tempted to grasp for control or be out of sorts when things don't go your way, Pray like this, and I mean this with all sincerity, because it's simple, it's true, and you know it, even if you don't know it. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones, which is all of us, to him belong. They are weak. He is strong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the hope that it gives us. We thank you for sending Jesus to come and clothe himself in weakness, to make himself weak so that we could be strong. Help us trust in him today, tonight, tomorrow, throughout this week. In his name we pray. Amen.